Welcome to Practical Christian Living. He weeps over Jerusalem and he says, you're going to be embarked and you're going to be completely destroyed. It happened just as Jesus said. But in giving that prophecy, he gives us a clue at the end again. He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This gives us the idea that they should have known when Jesus was going to appear. Are we living in the expectancy of Jesus' return? We know that Jesus could return at any time for His church, but are we living like we really believe it? Today on Practical Christian Living, we look at the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on the very first Palm Sunday. Prophecy foretold to everyone in that crowd that this was their King, their Messiah, yet they did not know they did not recognize their humble king riding in on a donkey. Here's Robert Furrow with Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this Palm Sunday and understand the prophecies that come from it. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Just a little bit of a encouragement in the beginning of this study. We're going to be covering a lot of information, especially in the prophecies. So if you want to get out your phone or whatever you have to be able to take some notes, it will probably be advantageous for you to do that because I'm going to go over a lot of information. The good news is, is this is archived in several different places, Facebook, YouTube, and you can go back and you can watch it again and get the information if you need it. But I'm going to be flying through some information that I wish I could slow down with, but I just don't have time to be able to do it. So we're going to be talking about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem today. Jesus has an encounter or an appointment with a donkey. And it's kind of a strange appointment, but we're going to learn a lot of things from it. The study is called Lessons from the First Palm Sunday. So we're going to look at seven lessons that we learn of what happened on that day. It's a passage we are very familiar with. When we get very familiar with the passage, we might not really pay that much attention to it, but it's always good for us too because it's always richer than what we think. So we want to take time to look at those seven things. The seventh thing that happened on Palm Sunday is that prophecy was fulfilled. And we're going to look at two prophecies, and one of them is lengthy. So if you're wondering why I'm hurrying through the other six things that happened on Palm Sunday, now you know, all right? So we will come to the end of our text and then we'll be going to Daniel chapter 9, all right? So the first thing that, that happened on Palm Sunday is that Jesus was ascending with a lot of other pilgrims in the area up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. This is important for us to understand because it was every Jewish person's dream that lived near Jerusalem to be able to go there during the Passover feast. It was the biggest one. It's like Christmas for us. It was the biggest one for them. They had seven feasts a year. They wanted to make it up there for the other feast, but Passover was it. And if you can imagine all of these people walking and riding, making their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a mountain range. On top of that mountain range, there are three basic mountain tops. There's Mount Zion, which we would say the upper room was at. There's the Temple Mount, which is Mount Moriah. And then there's the Mount of Olives. 
There's other mountains that are around there, but those are the three dominant peaks. And when you're going up to Jerusalem, you are thinking of the temple, a 15-story building. If you've been to Jerusalem or you've seen pictures of the Dome of the Rock, it's about three stories high. This one was 15 stories high. And as they went, they would sing songs to God. And in the book of Psalms, you have a sense up into heaven. You have them worshiping and singing these psalms that were written for that very purpose. And you can imagine, you would be walking with people you don't know. You would be walking with your family. You would be making this hike up to Jerusalem. And you might join a group of people who are praising and worshiping as they're walking. This is a worship experience. That's the ascent up into heaven. Now we know what path Jesus took in his ascent. He came to Bethany, just on the other side of Mount of Olives. He went down the Mount of Olives, the descent down the Mount of Olives, and then he went through probably the East Gate. We don't know for sure because we're not told, but the East Gate is right there on the road. To go into the South Gate, he would have to go down the Valley Kidron, past the Garden of Gethsemane, down the Valley Kidron, and come around to the South Entrance and enter in that way. Maybe. It's not that big of an area. He might have done that. And then he would go up onto Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount was, where he looked around. So the first thing is that Jesus was on this ascent to Jerusalem. He was sharing with all of these people who were on their way to a spiritual experience to remember through the Passover, the deliverance from slavery. The second thing that we learn about the first Palm Sunday is that Jesus was in control of everything. This is really important for us to understand because they had tried to make him king throughout his ministry and he would not let them. He just wouldn't let him do it. They tried to tell people he was the Messiah and he would say, don't tell anybody. He raised a man's daughter from the dead and told the man, don't tell anybody. Bible says he went and told everybody. He, he told people he healed, don't tell anybody who did it. When Peter said, you are the Messiah, Jesus says, keep that to yourself. Don't tell anybody. But now he will orchestrate a crowd of people on the ascent into Jerusalem on the Passover festival that he is a king. He is in control of it all. Let's take a look at that. It says in verse 29 of, of Luke chapter 19, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage of Bethany. Bethpage is a village around Bethany and archaeologists have not found Bethpage. We have found Bethany, but not Bethpage at the Mount called Olivet. Now we know that Bethany is near the top as you go over it, you'll begin to see Jerusalem there on the opposite side near the top. And then he said to his disciples, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Just like Jesus was laid on a tomb that no one was laid in, he would now enter into Jerusalem, hailed as king on a colt no one else sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anybody asks you why you are loosing it, thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. Now, this begins to give us a clue that there's a change taking place because he uses the term for the Lord as the Lord of the universe. I can use the word God with a small g. If I'm writing something out and I write out God with a small g, you know I'm not talking about the God of the universe. I'm talking about a God in Greek mythology or I'm talking about one of pantheistic gods when I write down a small g. But when I write down a large G, you know I'm talking about the God of the universe. Well, in Greek, there's something like that. 
And Jesus used that here. When he said the Lord has need of it, he is saying God Almighty has need of it. And this is Jesus shifting away from not telling people that he is God to telling people that he is the Lord, that he is the significant person. The reason Jesus didn't come out of the chute telling people he was God is because crazy people tell you that they are God. If you meet someone that says, I just want you to know I'm God, you are like, okay, nice to meet you, God. So Jesus had to do works and reveal himself in such a way that people would come to that conclusion themselves and begin to think something's going on here. Something is pretty phenomenal. Something's happening. And so this is obviously arranged. It says, thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So as they went their way, they found it just as he had said to them, there's the colt tied up. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought it to Jesus. Now, Jesus is obviously in control here. He told them, go get the colt. They didn't find a colt, a donkey colt. Bring him to Jesus. Say, you sit on it. We're going to make you king. Like he tried to before. They tried to force him to be king. He, he wouldn't let him. But now he's, he's, he's actually doing it. This is Jesus's idea. This is obviously prearranged. And it's funny to me the things people fight over. People fight over whether or not Jesus had prearranged this in person. In other words, he was in Bethany and he said to somebody, hey, can you have a colt ready for me on the first day of the week of the Passover feast? Because I'm going to come by and get it. And the guy said, yeah, I'll tie it up outside here. And when your guys come, just have them tell me that the Lord has need of it. And other people say it was supernatural. Jesus supernaturally did this and sent their way so they would know there's something supernatural going on. It reads to me like it's supernatural. We don't know that for sure, right? There's a bunch of speculation there. But it reads to me that way. But the important thing is, whether he arranged it supernaturally or whether he arranged it naturally, Jesus is the one who arranged it. And then the third thing that happened on the first Palm Sunday is they began to give him honor. They began to notice that he was worthy of honor. He was worthy of praise, that he had done these great miracles, that he had risen people from the dead, that he had healed lepers, that he had forgiven sins, that he forgave the sin of a woman caught in the act of adultery. He forgave the sin of a probably a prostitute that wept on his feet and wiped him with her hair. They saw all of these things Jesus had done for three years of ministry and they want to honor him. So it says that they brought the donkey to Jesus in verse 35 and they threw their clothes on the colt and sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes along the road. The third thing that happens, or excuse me, the fourth is that they are receiving him as king. They give him honor as the third, and then they're receiving him as king. We know that when Jehu became king in 2 Kings 9, 13, that they laid their cloaks down on the steps and he walked down over their cloaks and became king. So they know now that they are exalting him as king. He is king of kings. He is Lord of Lord. He is the rightful king of Jerusalem, the rightful king of Israel. He is the descendant of David in the lineage to the king. That's how Matthew opened up the book of Matthew with this lineage that went from Abraham, Abraham to David, David to Jesus, so that he is in the lineage of king and that he is the king. And so they receive him as king. And we read that in verse 37, where it says, Then as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, he would go up the Mount of Olives, then come back down to the Valley Kidron, where Gethsemane was, and then go back up into Mount Moriah. 
that as he came to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which echoes what the angels said to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born. But notice that they call him King. This happened as he comes up on top of the Mount of Olives. You get that first view of Jerusalem. It must have been exciting for those pilgrims to see that 15-story-high temple with the two pillars that stood out front and all the gold all the way around it, knowing that they were going to give their Passover sacrifice at that temple. And they begin to praise and worship him as king. They're waving palm branches, and they are lifting him up and exalting him as king coming down that descent of the Mount of Olives. It's all very exciting. They are quoting Psalms 118. There's a psalm. They are quoting verse 26 in that psalm, but the psalm talks about salvation. He is bringing salvation with him as he is raised up as a king. And of course, Jesus is going to Jerusalem now. This is Sunday. By Friday, he will be dead. Okay? So he is bringing salvation. The fifth thing that was happening on Palm Sunday was that praise was taking place. This honor, presenting him as king, was absolutely necessary. It had to be done. This was a moment in the life of Jesus. The optics needed to be there. He arrived at the first time, came to Jerusalem as their king. He is rejected by them. But the optics of Jesus as the king during his first arrival was necessary. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And so people say, Well, I wish you would have told them to all shut up so we could have heard the stones cry out. But that wasn't the point that he was making. He was saying, I'm not going to quiet them. This is necessary. And really, it's necessary in our lives as well that we exalt Jesus as king, that we put him on the throne of our lives, that we have the optics. I had said that the optics of his first arrival, in his second arrival, it's going to be obvious he's king. He's going to come in on a horse, and he's going to come in in victory. And he's king of kings and lord of lords. They're written on his thighs. And just in case you don't know who he is, oh, king of kings and lord of lords. That's who it is. But this one, he's on a donkey. And you can't miss the contrast and the comparison of the donkey. First of all, you have the king of kings riding on a lowly beast of burden. I was listening to a study earlier this week that a donkey's favorite pastime is rolling around in the dirt. Now I understand why in Shrek and in Winnie the Pooh, they have the donkey rolling around in the dirt. I understand that now. There just is this huge contrast between the two. Irony but also they're compared because the beast of burden is a beast of labor and Jesus came to serve mankind by dying for us. So he is entering into Jerusalem as the servant king, not as the victorious king, but he is still the king nevertheless and praise this exalting him as king is necessary. So it is for you and me. Told you I was going to go through these quick. Six, he grieved over Jerusalem. You would think there would be great joy. You would think that as Jesus heard them praising him, lifting him up as the king of Israel, that there would be great joy. But it says in verse 41, 
Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially this day, it was a very important day for them and they should have known that day, the things that make for your peace, but they are hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when enemies will build an embarkment around you. 66 AD, Titus, before he was emperor, his father Vespasian sent him to Israel. He sieged Jerusalem, embarked around them, took him four years to take the city. And he says, they will surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone left upon another. The reason is, is because it took them four years to take Jerusalem. They were mad about that by the time they took it. The longer the siege went on, the more, Josephus tells us this, the more the soldiers thought, we're destroying it. And as soon as they broke through, they killed everyone they could possibly get a hold of to kill and they leveled the city. Josephus said it looked like a, like a city that had not been inhabited when the Romans were done with it. That was foretold by Jesus. This is a prophecy. He weeps over Jerusalem and he says, you're going to be embarked and you're going to be completely destroyed. It happened just as Jesus said. But in giving that prophecy, he gives us a clue at the end again. He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This gives us the idea that they should have known when Jesus was going to appear. You and I as the church, we are his and we don't know when he's going to arrive the second time. No one knows the day or the hour. And stop listening to the people who tell you they do. Because they don't. And don't let them get, well, I might not know the day or the hour, but I know the month. It is September 2020 that Jesus is going to come back. Well, now we know you've blown it. It won't be this month. Because the Bible says at a time when you don't expect that I'm going to return. Now there's a bunch of people, again, every September. It's just ridiculous now. Every September. There's these new people. I got it. Jesus is coming back this September. It's the last trumpet of the Feast of Tabernacles. Get something new. <laughs> might still be wrong, but it might at least be interesting in that case. They should have known the day of their visitation, but they didn't. Now, there are two prophecies, at least, that are being fulfilled here. The first one is Zechariah 9.9. And the thing about prophecy, and I want to quickly cover this, when I first became a Christian, I heard that Jesus had fulfilled 350 prophecies. I have quickly in my messages gone over that fact. But when you go and you start looking up those prophecies, have you guys had this experience? I'm just wondering. You look them up and you kind of begin to read through them and you go, eh, some of these are sketchy. Some of these don't look like they're that clearly a fulfillment. And that's because you've got to know the language sometimes. You've got to know the nuances sometimes. You've got to know the culture sometimes. You've got to know that some prophecies have double fulfillment. There's a partial fulfillment and then a complete fulfillment in Jesus. And you know that when you see that there's a, a partial fulfillment, but certain key parts are left out. And then Jesus becomes the complete fulfillment of that. So you've got to know that. So there are certain prophecies that stand on their own. And I am dedicated to never just saying again, Jesus fulfilled 350 prophecies. I want to talk about individual prophecies and I want to talk about the nuances of those prophecies so that you will be able to know what they are so that you won't go and read a list and go, what was Robert talking about? I don't think it's a good thing that we just throw out a list like that and expect people to be able to, to connect the dots because when people go and read it, they just go, uh, 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 I guess they know what they're talking about or either they're whack 
they are legitimate. There are some of them that you have to go, this looks like a prophecy. That's why I don't want to throw around that, you know, 350 number anymore. But here in Zechariah 9.9, it's a prophecy, no doubt. And there are a few dozen of them that are prophecies, even if you don't understand Hebrew, you don't understand the nuances, you don't understand the culture. There are still these prophecies that stand out as prophecies. This is one of them. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. This is a prophecy that this king coming to them was a just individual and he was having salvation. Why was Jesus going to Jerusalem on the Passover week? To die for our sins, to give us salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt of the foal of a donkey. Sometimes kings rode donkeys into cities because he wanted to send a signal that they were bringing peace and not war. Jesus rode on the colt of a donkey. He went one step lower to show an even greater contrast. The second prophecy that is being fulfilled here is really a prophecy that is fulfilled during the entire ministry of Jesus. Jesus began his ministry sometime in the early 30s, probably around 30 AD in, in the first century, to somewhere around 33. He may have been crucified in 32. He may have started his ministry in 29. He may have started his ministry a little later. The reason we don't know for sure is because of the year zero. Do you count it? Don't you count it? When do you start counting? And so, you know, you just kind of get this. And how good were they at backing up to the actual birth of Jesus when they did this? And there's some evidence that they weren't really good when people finally decided to start saying, let's divide history by the birth of Jesus. There's evidence that they didn't pick a good date. Shocking that people would make mistakes like that. But they did. So finding the exact date is, is hard. However, there's this amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel where we have the time frame for the Messiah. It says from a certain point until the Messiah will be this many years. And it's amazing. It's an amazing prophecy. Let me give you just a little bit of background about this prophecy. It's in Daniel chapter 9. It starts in verse 24. We're going to go through 27. And Daniel is considering the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who was around when Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians. Daniel is a prophet during the entire time of the Babylonian captivity. Near the end of his life, he begins to look at Jeremiah's prophecies and he realizes Jeremiah says, you guys are going to be in captivity for 70 years and then you're going to be brought back into the land. And so he begins to pray. God, let this happen. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Because there were a lot of different reasons they were taken captive. But as far as the length of time they would be captive, 70 years, it was connected to the fact that they did not give the land its proper rest. See, in the law, there was not only weeks of days. You work six days, you take one day rest. And this is very important to follow. But there was weeks of years. You worked the land for six years and you gave the land one year off. This, we know, is extremely important. You have to rest land or you've got to replace the nutrients or you've got to cross, you know, do cross crops. We understand that now. So God wanted the land to have a year off. And in order to do that, you had to have faith. So as a farmer, if you had your land and you worked it for six years and you're thinking, I don't think I'm going to make it through the whole year. I'm not going to be able to feed my family. So what they did for 490 years, 
is they didn't give the land the Sabbath year off. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kagan 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.